In the beginning, God create the heaven and the earth. And the earth was formless and empty. And His Spirit hovered over the waters of the deep. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. So this is the way the first book of the Bible starts. What's it called? Genesis. Genesis. Genealogy. Origins. Where we get the word for beginning. It's an answer to the question that we all ask. If you're paying attention to anything other than what's right in front of your face, you're asking these kind of questions. Where does life come from? Where do we come from? Now, in the day Genesis was first told and then written, just like today, there were different answers to that question. Where does life come from? Where do we come from? And in the ancient world, the stories that were opposite Genesis, but around the same time as Genesis, were stories that if you went to college and you took any kind of literature class, you've probably had to read them before. The ancient Babylonian story, uh, the Enuma Elish, which was a different answer entirely than what you just heard. It's a different origin story. In the Enuma Elish, basically, where do we come from? Well, the gods. There's a lot of them and they were at war. They were doing a lot of inappropriate stuff together. And one god, Marduk, wound up killing the other gods and their rotting bodies turned into heaven and earth. And Marduk, he was tired. All that battle, all that creating, that does something to you. So he made human beings. And you know why he made us? To be slaves. Because he didn't want to work anymore. And that's how all of us were made, except for a select few, just a few. He made those people to be rulers over the slaves, and he made them in his image. That's the origin story, and there are a lot more like that in the ancient world. And I want you to imagine, it might be helpful as we're beginning this series on the Gospel of John, as we're reading through the Gospel of John together, to also read Genesis 1 and 2 and use a little imagination. What would it have been like as a Jewish person? You're forced to work. You've been taken away from your home. You're in Babylon. You're having to work uh, as a slave or an indentured servant. And every day, all day, you're hearing the story of Marduk in the public square over and over again. Your kids are hearing that story. They're being told that's who they are. You're being told that's who you are. And at the end of work, you go back to your village and you go into your, your home with other Jewish families, other friends, and you close the blinds and you open Genesis 1. A story that's very different than what you're hearing everywhere else. A different origin story that offers hope and human dignity and freedom. Because origin stories matter. So a couple of years ago, I woke up to a bite. We got, I got bit by a wolf spider. Y'all know what that is? It's like not big enough to be terrifying, but also you don't want to wake up to it. 
and it bit me. And my two youngest sons, Joel and Judah, they were there. And they were very interested. They were like, you got bit by a spider? And for the next two hours, I couldn't shake them. They were following me around everywhere. And later I realized like, oh, I'm their little guinea pig. I'm the experiment to whether they should mess with spiders or not. Because they thought, you know what they thought? Yeah, they thought that was going to happen to me. Like just uh, dad, try to see if you stick to a wall. You know, like they wanted to know if I was going to turn into Spider-Man. Why? Because they had seen all kinds of stories like this. Right? I mean, think of all the origin stories you've seen. Batman, Spider-Man, Superman. And it starts off, you know, that it's somebody who's going to ultimately fight crime or, or whatever. But first, you've got to know their origin story. And by the way, how many times do we have to see Peter Parker get bit by a spider? Because, right, like we're seeing that over and over again. And then the hero finally realizes their full potential. Now, I don't know what your origin story is, but I guarantee you, you have developed one maybe it's about how you came from like a rough childhood or maybe it's how you learned something new a talent you had when you were a teenager or uh, your family moved and you had to make new friends or whatever but that's not your real origin story right ever since genesis 2 every human being's origin story the our real one goes something like this well my mom and dad met And one thing led to another. And that can be a happy origin story, or that can be a sad one. But that's how you got here. You got here just like everyone else. So settle down, Superman. You are not from Krypton. Every human being has that story, except one. So... We're going through the Gospel of John. We're just beginning it. And we're, we're coming up next Sunday is the beginning of a, a season called Advent. It's something that Christians around the world and throughout history um, for like 1,800 years have celebrated. And Advent is not Christmas. Advent is waiting. It's you put yourself in the position of what it felt like as the early Israelites waiting on Jesus, the Messiah, to come. You kind of recognize the world is broken. I'm broken. How long, O oh Lord? When are you going to do something about this? That's the kind of season we're in. And it's a little bit hard to preach Christmas kind of sermons out of the Gospel of John. Because I don't know if you've noticed, there's no wise men in John. There's no like manger scene in John. There's no like Linus moment, which is a Charlie Brown Christmas. Because I'm hashtag staying relevant. But Christmas is all over John. Just not the way we normally think of it. Because here's the way it's framed in the Gospel of John. Where did Jesus come from? And I really like this way of talking about it. What makes this birth different? So there's another Gospel, Gospel of Matthew, another story of Jesus, which is also a faithful representation of God becoming a human being. It's the Gospel of Matthew, and it it has more Christmassy elements. But here's the thing that you're familiar with, whether you're a Christian or not, you see these signs for sale at Walmart. These verses are there. Matthew says, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet Isaiah. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. That's Matthew 1, 22 and 23. Okay. Born from a virgin sounds Christmassy. It's like, this is the normal stuff we should talk about this time of year. 
But what a weird thing to say. What a weird thing to say we believe. Like, how do you, how do you come across as normal saying you believe stuff like this? Maybe we should play that down. Because that is the one thing virgins don't do. They do not give birth. Matthew is actually quoting from another story, and we actually have really good historical data on when this story is. It's, it's from 733 B.C. That's the year. And we know that because of the, his, the, the documentation. So here's what's happening in the story. It's in Isaiah chapter 7. Um, it's kind of complicated because it's the Middle East, and it's always been complicated. But here's what's going on. The, uh, the superpower of the day is Assyria. And the king of Assyria was like um, very aggressive. There was a Palestinian revolt that he had quashed by a surprise attack. Does that sound familiar? And, and because of that, there was a reaction. And there were these other two nations in the Palestinian area. Damascus, the king of Damascus, and the king of Israel. Now, Israel had separated into two different kind of states at this point. Two different kind of kings. So there's Israel and Jude, um, Judah. And what happens when... The, pal, pal, um, the king of Damascus and the king of Israel see that Assyria surprised attacked them. They said, we got to stop this. And we're too small and Assyria is too big. But if we band together, we can take out Assyria. And they're like, well, we need a little bit more help. So they go to King Ahaz, the king of Judah. And they're like, listen, if we all three combine, we have a fighting chance against Assyria. And King Ahaz looks at Assyria and he's like, no, we don't. I mean, they're a giant superpower. We have no chance. I don't want to, I, I want nothing to do with this. And so the king of Damascus and the king of Judah say, if you're not going to fight with us, then we're going to fight you first. These two nations are going to uh, tribe up against the one nation is of Judah. And they're going to wipe them out. And it says in Isaiah 7 that the people of Judah's hearts were melting with fear. And King Ahaz, who was actually kind of a pretty smart political king, realizes he's in a bind. But he does the one thing they didn't expect him to do. He goes to Assyria and says, hey, these guys want me to fight you. But I'm thinking two on two with you is better than three on one with them. And that's when the prophet Isaiah shows up. And he says, Ahaz, do you know what you're doing? If you, if you do this, the deal you're making with Assyria, you know how they're going to protect you? You're having to say, I will start worshiping your gods. Ahaz, you've given up too much. Don't do this. In fact, the Lord will protect you. The Lord will save Judah. You don't need to do this. In fact, and this is the only time that this happens in the Bible that I know of, God, ask for anything. God will give you a sign that he can be trusted and that y'all can be secure and safe. Ask for anything. And King Ahaz tries to pretend like he's all holy. And he's like, no, I don't want to test the Lord. I don't want to do that. And so Isaiah is like, fine. Then here is a sign for you. A virgin will give birth. And that's the way you can know the Lord can be trusted. And then nothing. We don't ever hear anything else about this. It's like, is there a single mom out there who's really confused in the 8th century? No, we don't hear anything about it. It remains an open prophecy. Kind of unfulfilled. Because King Ahaz 
didn't wait. He made that deal with Assyria, and it went the way deals with Assyria ultimately always go. And I, I like this story a lot because I think this is where we live. That may sound super strange and complicated, but it's somebody who's caught in a very tough situation and they're being asked to trust God with their future and they don't. And that is where, I don't know about you, but I think I live some of my days. It's easy to trust God and Jesus with your future when you're in a church building with everybody sitting around you. It's an entirely different thing when you got real life staring you in the face. When there's relatives in town and there's some kind of family drama or there's conflict at work or uh, you have a serious, you know, your money's running tight. What do you run to? What's your Assyria? Is it your own cleverness and talent? Is it your government? Because that's actually what it was here. Is it your friends and family? Because eventually, no matter what it is you're running to for security, you've probably had moments where they've let you down. And if you haven't, then stick around. Anyway, that's the background of this story. A virgin will give birth, will be a sign in insecure times that you can trust God for your future and security. But it's a strange sign. Because virgins don't give birth. Uh, when I was 23, I was just graduated Harding. I was working in Fort Worth at the Hills. And I read this book. It had just come out by the then pastor, Rob Bell, called Velvet Elvis. And I loved it. At the time, I loved it. I read it like five times. And right in the middle of Velvet Elvis, Rob talks about the virgin birth. And at the time, I, was, I found it really compelling. He was like, is this really that big of a deal? And the way he says it is, what if tomorrow archaeologists dug up irrefutable proof that Jesus had a biological father named Larry? And they like figured out that he really has this dad. And does that mean that you have to stop being a Christian? Would it, what if you found out that um, in the ancient world there were other religions like the, the cult of Dionysus and the cult of Mithra that... Uh, also believed in virgin births. And maybe the Gospels were just trying to appeal to the followers there to be like, hey, look, our, our religions have something in common. And what, what if you discovered that in the first or the eighth century when Isaiah was written, that the word virgin might mean young woman who the first time she lay with a man got pregnant? Well, what would that mean? Would it mean that all this starts crumbling or falling apart? Or could you still follow Jesus. And then Rob Bell went on to say that he affirms the virgin birth and all that stuff, but he left me with a lot of questions. Questions that I thought were pretty interesting. I told you as I began this series, I was going to let you hear not just from the gospel of John, but also from the voices on the outside, the critics. Because I think the way of Jesus is an intellectually formidable I think he can stand up to the harshest criticism. And I started there with that from Rob Bell because I found out as I dug into it, that idea is not new to him. That idea actually comes from 17th, 18th, and 19th theologians from Germany, German liberal theologians. And one of the things when you read them that's interesting is they act like they're the first people in human history to realize like, oh, virgins don't give birth. <laughs> 
and, and they pointed out that other ancient religions had stories about virgin birth. And so obviously this is the way people thought back in the old days when we were dumb, but now we're smart, we're so enlightened. But, and this is true, you can check this. There's not another story like this. It's not like all world religions are the same and we all like fairy tales. No, this is not once upon a time or in a galaxy far, far away. This was not in Narnia. This happened under the reign of Caesar Augustus. In the days of Pontius Pilate and Herod the Great, Jesus was baptized in the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar. This stuff actually happened. And there's a reason, like from the earliest days of Christianity, that this was talked about. It's because people on the outside were talking about. This was a common thing. People knew about Jesus. And it was a source of shame because Jesus didn't have a dad. Um, in fact, in, by the third century, when all the Christian communities around the world were trying to get together, being like, what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? What does it mean to be a person of the way? This was in it. The creeds. That he was born of a virgin. And now we get to where it is in the Gospel of John. A lot. But not the way you think. Let me just show you a couple examples from the same chapter, but you can find them all over the Gospel of John. Jesus gets sideways with the religious establishment at some point, and they bring up his parents, or specifically, his father, or his lack of a father. And in John 8, Jesus says, I'm the one who testifies for myself. My other witness is the father who sent me. And they're like, oh yeah, about that. Who is your father? You do not know me or my father, Jesus replied. If you knew me, you would know my father also. And then he gets into talking about their lineage. They, you know, Father Abraham is a big deal for these men and women. Abraham is our father, they answered. And Jesus says, if you were Abraham's children, then you would do what Abraham did. As, as it is, you are looking for a way to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. Abraham didn't do these kind of things. You were doing the work of your own father, and he's calling them the children of evil. Satan. And they say, well, we are not illegitimate children. Can you see this? At least Jesus, stop speaking metaphorically for a second. At least we know who our dad is, Jesus. Every culture has a word for illegitimate children and none of them are good. The word back in Jesus' day was the word mamzer. Let me hear you say mamzer. Mamzer, yeah. That's, you should wash your mouth out with soap. That's a word that would have been offensive. And it's a word that Jesus would have heard sometimes whispered and sometimes not. Because everybody knew this story. In fact, so much in the second century, there's a Greek philosopher as the way of Jesus was beginning to pick up a head of steam. Um, and it was confusing to the Greeks and the Romans, but they, they called them Christians because they didn't understand. They couldn't pronounce Christ. Christians. And they get to this and like, born of a virgin, please. And so they do a little, and, and this Greek philosopher Celsus says, everybody knows what happened. Mary got pregnant with a Roman soldier that was in town, uh, and his name was Pandera. Pandera. And he was kind of a ladies' man. And by the way, fun fact, it's where we get the word pander is his name. 
It's like, that's what happened. In other words, to the people on the outside of Christianity, this was kind of a big deal. Why? And here's where it gets really good, I think. Because it's not like most Westerners think, like, do you believe in miracles or not? No, it's bigger than that. It's not, you know, this is what Christians have always believed. The bigger question is where, and it's a question that both the opponents of Christianity and the people inside are trying to answer different ways. Where did Jesus come from? And the reason this is such a big deal is, is he just a part of the same broken world we are? Or is he just another link in a long chain of broken reality? Is this just more of the same with a new spin on it and a new name? Or is this a radically different thing altogether? Is this a break with what all of human history has been? Did Jesus come from somewhere else or not? See, back in the day of Jesus, Jewish people, they observed the world differently than we do today. That's not a surprise. I think we get some things wrong today and we miss some stuff that they could see. But here's how they talked about the world. They went outside, they observed the world, they thought about you know, their, their meaning, their stories. And so the average Jewish person, when they talked about the world, talked about like this, this is, you know, in your Bible, this is the way they describe it. This is the kind of world they're in. You got the earth and then you got the clouds and the sky. And then past that, you have windows and the door of heaven, right? And then you got shell and the foundations of the heaven and the great deep. It's how they thought about it. And when Jesus, when God becomes one of us, He uses that language to describe what's going on. And so Jesus, over and over again in the Gospel of John, says, I come from above. My kingdom is not from this world. It's different than what you know. But because we think in Western Enlightenment terms, we hear that, and we do stuff like this. In 1961... When Russia became the first government to go into outer space, the Russian astronaut Yuri Gagarin breaks breaks past the atmosphere and as he's orbiting the earth, Yuri Gagarin says, I don't see any God up here. In other words, Jesus is wrong. You didn't come from above. In fact, all there is above is stars and planets. And C.S. Lewis, the famous Christian apologist, heard that. And he wrote a book called The Seeing Eye. And he said basically what's happening right now is that that person, Yuri Gugarin, is making a categorical error. Because if we were to relate to God, it would not be the same way that a person who lives on the first floor relates to a person on the second floor. And you just go up to the second floor to see if that person's there. No, that's a categorical error. It's a bad philosophy or way of thinking about it. This is the God in whom we live and move and have our being. He is, um, it's a different kind of scenario. And so C.S. Lewis said, it's actually more like this. Could Hamlet ever meet Shakespeare? And the answer to that is no. No matter how hard Hamlet tried, he couldn't meet Shakespeare because Hamlet is in a different order than Shakespeare. The only way that could happen is if Shakespeare wrote himself 
or wrote Ham- Shakespeare wrote himself into Hamlet's story. And when Jesus is saying, I come from a different order, that's what he's saying. God has wrote himself into his creation. Or in the words of John, John chapter 1, we're going to read uh, through 14 and skip a couple of verses that are introductions to John the Baptist. In the beginning was the Word. This is the origin story. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and through Him all things were made. And without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world, and He was in the world. And though the world was made through Him, the world did not recognize him and he came to that which was his own but they did not receive him and yet and this is what i want you to see to all who did receive him to those who believed in his name he gave the right or the power to become children of god children born not of natural descent nor of human decision or of a husband's will but born of God. A different origin story. And the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. And we have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. That's what Jesus' birth means. His origin story is that He has no origin story. He is beginningless. All of our origins have their origin in Him. This is less like a new character in the Marvel Universe and more like this. Somebody tell me, who is this guy? Stanley, and what's he, what did he do? He created Marvel. And those are scenes of all the Marvel movies Stanley is in. In other words, it's C.S. Lewis's point. The only way that Captain Marvel is ever going to meet Stan Lee is if he writes himself into his own creation. Now, listen, if you're a skeptic, trust me, I believe it. I get it. I just want to encourage you to be fair with your skepticism. Because whenever you talk about these big things like this, there's some holes in everything. So, for example... Yes, it is true that Christians believe that Jesus was God in the flesh, born of a virgin. But scientific materialists believe in the virgin birth of the cosmos. So pick your miracle. And by the way, in the Bible, virgin births are not a regular feature. Jesus is the only virgin birth that actually happens in the Bible. From Genesis to Revelation. Now, sure, there are strange births, like Abraham and Sarah giving birth when they are older. Or Hannah giving birth when she had been infertile before. Or Moses giving birth and put in a basket. There are different, like, there are strange births that happen when God is doing something in a powerful way or moving history in a powerful way. Just like what God does here. But this time it's different. Because he was born not of a husband's will or from natural descent. And yet, he is still the faith, the daughter of, of, the child of a faithful daughter of Israel, Mary. 
St. Augustine, who's a North African theologian from the 4th century and is one of the smartest dudes who's ever lived. He's an intellectual heavyweight. He looked at the story of the virgin birth and he said, it makes sense. Because these two things. This is the God who created us without us, but who also will not save us without us. He asked Mary for her consent to be the portal for which the infinite would become finite. He doesn't need to intervene in creation because he's never been absent from creation, but God entered this world not through some space-time portal, but through a birth canal. And in the Gospel of John, you're going to see he really did enter this world. He wept. He experienced hunger. He grew tired. He became thirsty. He suffered. He ate and drank and slept and woke and he needed to be with people. And then he needed, like some of you after Thanksgiving, needed to not be with people. Uh, He was fully human in every way. God. Fully human. There was a soldier who fought in World War I and saw some of the worst of humanity. And later on, he put his Christian faith into a poem. And he said, The other gods were strong. But thou art weak. They rode, but you stumbled to a throne. But to our wounds, only God's wounds can speak. And here's the point of Gospel of John's introduction. Can we allow this God into our life? Can, can we set aside our natural skepticism? Because we're not the first people to realize virgins don't give birth. Jewish people didn't think that happened any more than you do. Can you set aside your natural skepticism and trust that the God in whom we live and move and have our being really is good and is concerned enough about your well-being to let write himself into this story? Later on in the scriptures, we hear that Jesus stands at the door and knock. And I think that's a perfect way of describing what happened with Mary. Will you let me into your life? Will you let me be born in you? He is giving us the power to become children of God, born not of natural descent or of a husband's will, but of an entirely different order, an entirely different origin. So here's the question. Have you bent your knee to Jesus? To all who have believed in him, he gave the power to become children. Have you responded to this? It's a historical moment, but it's not just a historical moment. It's a deeply personal invitation. Have you taken that next step towards Jesus, pushed past the skepticism and said, this may be the truest thing I've ever heard? Because that's what this story means. In the end of the Chronicles of Narnia, it's seven books. They're wonderful. If your parent, read them to your kids. They're great. But in the end of the books, the last battle, all the kids that have been through all these different adventures, they're in a war. And they're trying to get to protection. And in the middle of this field, in the middle of this war, they see a shed. It's a small shed. And they run to it for protection. And they open the door. And inside, they see an entire new universe. And they're running around this universe, running around the fields, just laughing and having all kinds of joy. And one of the first characters you meet in Narnia, Lucy, says this. You know, in the world I grew up in, there was once a stable that had something inside 
that was bigger than everything on the outside. That's what John 1 wants you to know. This is not some sentimental Christmas. This is the power to, in the words of John, be born again.